Grab out your Bibles. If you want to be extra prepared, you can turn to the letter of First John. All right, well, we've worshipped the Lord in song. We've worshipped Him around the, the Lord's table in fellowship and communion in offering. Time to worship the Lord through the proclamation of His Word. And I want to begin this morning a, a bit of a series. If you've been around here for a while, you'll know that I love to just kind of camp in a portion, sometimes a book, sometimes a portion of Scripture and see what the Lord is saying to us, not just to me, hopefully, to us as a people. I love Paul's instruction to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. He says, let the word of Christ or the word of God dwell richly in your hearts, in your midst as you gather. And that would be my prayer for us. There's a lot of things I know that at times dwell in my hearts in my heart, that I'm not proud of, but there is an encouragement to us to allow his word to dwell richly, and we do that two ways. For me, I've always found it helpful to just study as rote as it is sometimes to camp in a particular portion of scripture for as long as it takes. And as you'll know, for those who were with us last year, First Peter was the theme for most of the year. So First John is like that, but I also wanted to give us this encouragement that for the word of Christ to dwell richly in our hearts, it can't be a one-way journey. It's got to be a two-way journey. We've got to be ready. Continually, Jesus, as he teaches, he, he uses this phrase. He says, let him who has ears hear. So most of us, if you're wondering, you can check. Most of us have ears. But do we have ears to hear? You see, we need to be ready to receive for the word of Christ to bear the full fruit that is his heart and his intention. We've got to be a people ready. So I'd encourage you, read this book in your personal time and just allow the Lord to speak to us through it as we camp here for a season, as long as the Lord would have us stay here. So let's pray and then we'll get into it today, this morning. Lord, we just thank you for this moment that we share together as Brendan said as we began worship, there's no two moments alike in your presence. Even the angels around your throne, as John describes in Revelation, it says day and night they're crying out, holy, 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 as they capture another glimpse of your majesty and your might and your grace and your mercy to us. And that's our prayer, Lord, not just this day, but each and every day, that you give us eyes to see you, to give us ears to hear your voice, that we would be continually in awe and in wonder at the God that we worship, that our lives of worship would flow from that place of recognizing who you are, the greatness of your love, the mercy that you extend to us today. So would you steal the noises, remove the distractions, help us clearly to see you, Jesus. Be exalted in our midst. Through the power of your Spirit, lead us ever deeper into the arms and the love of our Heavenly Father. Pray this today, this moment, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've just come in, First John is where we're heading. And I want to read the opening four or five verses, hopefully, if we get there. But let me give us a couple of introductory remarks as we approach. It's always good to have context we read any portion or passage of scripture this is written by the apostle john we believe sometime 
around or after 100 AD. So he's writing as an older man. I won't say old. I don't say old anymore. It's not politically correct. He's just slightly older than he was last week or last month. But he's lived a rich and a full life, and he has a particular passion. Remembering at this particular time in history, there's been two generations, possibly three generations of Christians, people who've grown up in the faith but not been there, not as John had touched the the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, not seen the wounds in his hands and feet. They'd not been there as the day of Pentecost came and filled the believers with power to proclaim in the explosion of the gospel and, and seen so many different things. And so continually he, he calls his readers little children, beloved children. That's not belittling. That's his heart of, of love and care and compassion as Grandpa John, Papa John, as this older man in life who's seen so many things. And he has this passion. What becomes clear as we read through this letter is that the second and third generations of Christians, things had in some way the passion that once was there had begun to wane. That the people who'd, who'd once lived with this euphoria and this thrill, this great passion for the Lord, the wonder was beginning to wear off a little. And so his passion is to see a people living lives set on fire, living, living lives set aflame with a love for Jesus Christ. And interestingly, as I said, we studied First Peter, and you'll see as Peter writes his letters, continually he's encouraging people to stand strong in the midst of trial. There's going to be some stuff, he keeps saying, but stand strong and allow the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to sustain you. Whereas John doesn't mention persecution at all. He's not talking about that which comes from without. He's talking about the apathy and the hard-heartedness that steps, seeps in from within. And even as he'll address in later chapters, teachers who didn't want to oppose Christianity, they wanted to improve it. None of us know anyone like that. I said, well, that was okay for 2,000 years ago or for a generation ago or for last week. But we want the new. We want the latest, the greatest. We want the latest fad, the latest teaching. And John continually is focusing his readers on what is important. So let's read together. First John chapter 1 begins in a style that really reflects who he is. He says, that which... This is verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. There's a lot of rich theology we could unpack there, but let's just grab the essence. What is he saying? John's saying this. There is truth. There's a reality. It existed from the beginning. It was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. We saw it. We touched it. It was tangible. We gazed upon it. We experienced its transforming power in our life. And now that very same reality of Jesus, of the truth, of the gospel, we could say, is exactly the message that I am proclaiming to you. What I have seen and what I have heard. There's three aspects to this. Really, he's saying, number one, that this truth, this reality is knowable. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not coming to you with something that's uncertain, not with myths and stories, with 
passing shadows in vague terms. I'm coming to you with a reality. I've seen it. I've touched it with my hands. I've experienced it here. This is why in so many ways I believe this letter speaks to a world that's full of uncertainties. That's full of relative or removed completely truth. Does truth even exist? And John wants to say as an older man, he says, I want there to be no shadow of a doubt. There is a truth that is knowable. I've seen it myself. He says there's a truth that's powerful. It leads to everlasting life. And if you read the context of what he's saying, he's really saying that this truth is unchanging. It was there from the beginning. It was made manifest to us. And it's that very same truth. Two, three generations later, I'm telling you, this still is the same truth. This is not the new improved version. The edited account. It's not the latest and greatest. This is the truth that was, that is, and forever will be. Now, I don't know if you caught this past week. Did any of you catch the uh, funeral service of Billy Graham? The late, great Billy Graham. A few people did. It was telecast live. I think there was an audience of in the millions, kind of fitting for a man, I guess, of his notoriety, of his influence. And if you watched it, you would have seen that there was presidents, there was world leaders there, there was the who's who of the Christian world, evangelical uh, preachers and the like. I said to Adam before, did, did your invitation come in the mail? He said, no, it's, I think over here somehow it was lost, delayed in the mail. But there was a large crowd there. And here are some statistics that were mentioned. You may be familiar with these, but they were celebrating the impact that this great man, Billy Graham, had. And apparently over 200 million, let that number just settle, people came to his crusades physically. 200 million. How many people here went to a Billy Graham? Okay, probably maybe a quarter. And there, was, there would have probably been, I reckon, a half of the, the early service as well who physically had been to a Billy Graham crusade and still places like the MCG. I think the crowd record for attendance for any event was not a concert was not a sporting event. It was a Billy Graham crusade. He impacted this nation. He impacted overseas. Apparently, and I don't know how they would arrive at this particular statistic, but over 2.2 billion, let that number settle, people heard him preach through his radio program and online media over seven decades. Personal advisor to 11 presidents, not to mention other leaders around the world. I mean, this guy left an incredible legacy. Very few people who weren't impacted, and even in the secular media when his death was reported. There was, there was a few reports that perhaps weren't so honoring, but there was a lot of honoring reports in the secular media about the life that he lived and the legacy that he left. So it's worth us asking. I mean, I'm thankful that we have in our day and time someone that we've seen with our own eyes who is such a great witness. I'm thankful for his witness. We have great heroes, and there's many others as well, not just Billy Graham, but we have someone who really lived out his faith well and as a result had an incredible impact. But what was his secret? What was the essence of his life? What was his message that 2.2 billion people tuned in to hear? Well, in his own words, at the, the last big gospel crusade he did back in 2005, he said this, this is Billy Graham's own words. He says, I have one message. I've only ever had one message. And this is it, that Jesus Christ came 
He died on a cross. He rose again. And he asked us to repent of our sins and receive him by faith as Lord and Savior. And if we do, we have forgiveness of all our sins. One message. He goes on in that, that same gospel crusade and he says, As I look back over my life, I'm always convinced there's only one thing that has the power to change lives. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I, I want to make this point. In an era and a society and even often in a church that we're always looking for the latest and greatest. We are. We're like, oh, have you heard of this particular teacher? Have you heard of this church? Have you heard of this teaching? And I, I'm not poo-pooing that and saying you should never, never chase those things, never be a part of any of those things. But I am saying that in an era that's forever looking for the latest and greatest, looking to reinvent, repackage, or sometimes remove altogether, there is one message that stands the test of time as a witness to humanity. And it's the gospel. And that's really what John is saying to his readers. He's saying, there is a truth. There's one truth. It's a truth that's always been from the beginning. It's a truth that was made manifest. It's a truth that now, at the end of my life, I'm making sure that you are anchored into the truth. Don't go chasing all these people who want to reinvent the latest this, the latest that, the latest fad, the latest philosophy. Anchor yourself into the thing that really matters. Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you and I might never preach to 2.2 billion people. Maybe we will. Don't want to dampen your enthusiasm. That's what you're called to. You and I may never have the ear of presidents and famous world leaders, but we can anchor ourselves into that which Billy Graham's life was anchored into. Into that which the Apostle John is saying, there is a reality. You see, we have a God and a truth that is certain. In fact, John will go on in chapter 5, verse 13, and he says, I'm writing these things. It's a couple of reasons, but one is so that you may have certainty about what you believe about who Jesus is. See, it's a knowable reality. It's a world that says, well, we can never know for sure. I just believe that we, you know, we can never really know. I mean, that statement, it always bugs me a little bit. Because I simply say to someone who says that, well, how do you know? See, it's a statement that is built upon the certainty of uncertainty. But that's not the Christian worldview. And that's what John is trying to tell us. That's what Billy Graham is saying. He's saying, I am certain that there is a truth. There's a king who has come and he's shown us the way he's become the way. He's healed our blindness. He said, there's, there's not a, a wilderness of conflicting truths to choose from. There's a reality and a rock, and it's Jesus. We never need to doubt that. We can be certain in that, and we can anchor our lives in, not on the latest fad, not on the latest teaching. Don't throw them all away, or some of them perhaps. They're not bad in and of themselves, but make sure your life is anchored in to that which really counts, and that is the truth that John proclaims, I've seen it, it's been made manifest, and it's the only thing that will lead us to everlasting life. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're only halfway through. Let's continue going. This is just the introduction. It says, That which we've seen and heard, verse 3, we proclaim to you, commas, where we paused, so that, 
You see, it's truth that leads us somewhere. Where does it lead us to? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. See, fellowship is what He intends. It's truth that leads us where to fellowship. It's a word It's used only of uniquely of the Christian experience, our relationship with God and one another, koinonia, without unpacking it and developing it as we will as we go through. He's saying there is truth that leads us to love. Love of one another and love of a heavenly father. And there's a reason why this little letter is often called, or John's called the apostle of love, and this is called the letter of love because he has this passion and this bent. He says, I want you to get this truth, but it's a truth that leads us into relationship, leads us into the incredible love. This is the father heart of John, if you like. Papa John is an older man talking about the incredible love of a father. And I want us to ponder that for a moment because of all the people you could find in scriptures to talk about love. I mean, truth, there's probably a few good candidates, but for all the authors you could find, all the disciples, all the people that the Lord, the Holy Spirit could inspire to write about love, John is an interesting candidate. And I think we forget because we read this letter, we read his gospel account of Jesus, and he almost comes across as this lovey, sort of soft guy. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the Dark Ages painting from that era of church history, normally John, he's just the guy, you know, Peter's there standing boldly preaching. John's over in the corner. He's just maybe nestled into Jesus. He's pale-faced, a little effeminate. That's, that's the picture that most people have of John. But this is what's important for us to understand who he was so that we can grasp what it is that he preaches to us. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go two places. First of all, let's turn to Mark 10.35 to discover who John was. And as a result, I'm hoping capture a bit of his heart as we set up this discovery into this wonderful little letter. In fact, we know more about John. John and Peter are the two people who feature most prominently throughout the gospel accounts, so we know quite a bit. Here's one account. It says in verse 35 of chapter 10, Gospel of Mark, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so they're brothers. John's the younger brother. And just a bit of context about this time. John's probably late teens, early 20s. He's the youngest of the disciples, the apostles. So we've got to extend him a little bit of grace. As sometimes young men, just saying, they can be a little more bravado than sense, can't they? Nod, yes. No, no one here? Okay, we'll move on. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him being Jesus and said to him, catch this, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now there's an interesting statement, an interesting open line. I mean, they weren't requesting, they were demanding. Jesus, we want you to do, we've just decided. We've made an executive decision that you should do whatever we ask you to do. Now, before you get too critical of James and John, I want you to think for a moment of your own prayer life. How often is that the way we approach God in prayer? Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. And with that conviction, we'll move on. So they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So Jesus, he says, well, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, this is the request. Listen to this. They've been thinking about this. They've premeditated what they're going to approach 
Jesus to ask, and here it is, grant us to sit, one at your right right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Some translations say, when you're sitting on your glorious throne. Grant us this request, one on the left, one on the right. Now, I would love to know how they arrived at this particular request. Were they there, more early morning devotions at some point? James and John talking to each other, perhaps reading the account of Isaiah or Ezekiel. And there I saw one like the Son of Man shining in his glory. The angels swirling around, crying out, Holy is the Lord, the living creatures. Everyone's bowing down. And in that moment, one of them has this bright idea. You know what? There's one thing missing here. You know what we need? We need two extra seats. That's what we need. One on the left, one on the right. Throne of God in the glory. There he is, the eternal God and James and John. (laughs) Who thinks like that? James and John. What sort of a people, perhaps we should ask, are we talking about? This is the apostle of love. You'd call that the apostle of stupidity, wouldn't you? I mean... What sort of a request is it that they're coming to the Lord, the eternal God, with? Let's look at another example. Just in case you thought, well, maybe that was a bad day. You know, they had some bad pizza the night before. They just were a little confused in their thinking. Jump over to Luke chapter 9, verse 54. Jesus had been ministering for some time. They'd been seeing some incredible signs and wonders. But, of course, not everybody received the gospel, and there was a village of Samaritans who did not receive the message that was brought to them. So here we go. It says, verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, B1 and B2, here we go again. (laughs) You see them together and you think we're in for some trouble. What's going to happen now? It says, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, here's their, their next great idea. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, first of all, they said, you want us. Like, this is not you here. This is not you. I mean, uh, you're doing some stuff. You're healing people. You're raising from the dead. Just leave this one to us. We'll make sure there's some more people to resurrect. And they're not calling out. They say, well, do you want us to, you know, just, just, just pray that, you know, they have a miserable week or curse the ground so they have a bad crop? I mean, they go the whole hog. They say, no, this is what we want. We want Sodom and Gomorrah. We want the fire. We want them burnt to a crisp. This is the great apostle of love. What is it that has happened in John's life? As I said, they're young men. They're full of all sorts of things. But in fact, Jesus gives them a title in Mark 3.17 and he calls them sons of thunder. I believe for exactly this particular reason. And interestingly, there's been a number of groups through the years who've adopted that term as kind of a positive term, sons of thunder, and that's okay. I don't know that he was giving them a compliment. Let's put it that way. I mean, thunder is brash and it's loud and it's, it's rude and it's an intrusive. And I think that's exactly what typified James and John. They acted before they thought. They asked for the two chairs. They called for people to be burnt to crisps. This is the great apostle. So what is it? I mean, you would think, reading those accounts, you'd think, well, how on earth did we get from there until this writing in First John, the apostle of love? This guy here over 40 times, he's talking about, well, we've got to love one another. I mean, that's a, that's a big transformation there, isn't it? From we've got to smite to we've got to love. We've got to love. This radical love had so got a hold of him that as he writes his gospel account, he never even uses himself by name. 
The only title he uses to refer to himself is the apostle, the disciple, the one who Jesus loved. I just want to be known by the love of Jesus. The love of the Father expressed through his son, Jesus Christ. Just call me that. I'm going to tell everyone about Jesus and I'm going to say I was just one who was loved by Jesus. Now, partly that's probably because the title, the one who asked for the extra chairs or the one who called down fire to smite people, it doesn't have quite the same ring. The point is this, there was a transformation and we're going to see this in this particular letter. See, he's lost none of his boldness. He's lost none of his fire, none of his intensity. But there's a different focus. He is consumed with the love that he has encountered. And he wants a people who are grounded in the truth, but a people whose hearts are set on fire with the love of God, expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. He's saying, don't let apathy come in. We've got to be anchored into the truth. The truth that's knowable, it's tangible, it's right here, I've seen it. I know you haven't been a part of it, but I have. And I want you to grab the truth. And I want you to know with no uncertain times, we're called to be a people whose hearts are set ablaze with love for one another and with love for you. So don't hear this and think, well, this is going to be a wishy-washy series. We're talking about the love of God. This is a bold, a radical love. And I want to conclude, as I said, I'm just trying to set the scene here. We've looked at the opening remarks of the Apostle John as he sets forth this letter, as we just set ourselves to allow the word of Christ to richly dwell in our hearts. And I want to ask us this question, or give us the exhortation of John. Are we a people who are anchored in to the reality of the truth of Christ? Could we get to the end of our lives like the great Billy Graham? And as I said, it might not be that you could claim to have preached to 2.2 billion people and had the year of 11 presidents. But each and every one of us can and should get to the end of our lives and say, you know what? I remained anchored. I remained anchored in the reality of who Jesus is. The only truth that has the power to save. The reality of the God who was and the God who came revealed himself, died on a cross. That's where I'm anchoring my lives. And I say that with love, but with the great urgency that we are, not just here, but we are in our world, and we certainly are in a, a church environment where we just want to chase fads. We want to chase the latest thing. We're not interested if it's not got the latest speaker, if it's not the latest thing, if it's not the latest music, if it's not... And as I said, don't discount everything. But let's make sure that we are anchored in to the one place that is going to remain. And are we a people who, in all honesty, we could say, well, yes, we, we are living with a passion for God. We're living with our hearts on fire. Or if we're honest, could we say, well, you know what? If I'm perfectly honest, there is a bit of apathy. There's a bit of distraction for other things, the worldliness around me. You know, what once was a fire has now become more a tradition and a routine. And I want to, just as we conclude, allow the Lord to stir a great fire in the hearts of his people this morning. So let's pray. I don't know if there's someone who can come and just play for us as we pray together. And I want to give you a moment just with your eyes closed, just between you and the Lord. If you want 
prayer for anything this morning. We have a prayer team who is ready, they're willing, they're able. It's both a joy and a privilege to stand alongside one another with each and every prayer need. I would encourage you, if you've not had prayer and you need it, not had it in a week, a couple of weeks, in a month, come forward. Get a brother or sister in Christ to stand with you, to agree together for whatever it is. But for all of us, before I invite those who want prayer forward, I just want to allow the Holy Spirit, the quietness of this moment before we rush away into a new week and all that's before us, to just move upon the hearts of His people. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us here that you'd, you'd show us where we're truly anchored into. And Lord, if there is a reality in which we've been chasing after fads, even good things that are not the reality of Christ in our lives, I pray that right now there'd be a recalibration. Lord, we want to be a people who know what it is to be anchored into this truth. The truth of who you are. The only truth that has the power to save and heal. The truth of the reality of a God. And the certainty that we have that He is who He said He is. Lord, You've not put us on this planet to live in darkness, to fudge our way through, to live in a wilderness of conflicting opinions. You said Yourself in the Gospel of John, for this reason I've come to bear witness to the truth. And we can know that truth. And the truth will set us free. Lord, bring us back to your truth. We want to we stay there. We don't want to just know it. We want to allow your truth and the certainty that we have to set us free. And I'm laboring that point because I feel like this morning there is, could be just a few of us, could be many of us here. And you feel like you've just been tossed on the waves. There's doubts, there's fears. And I feel like this morning the Lord wants to just anchor you in afresh to His truth. Saying, just trust me. Just build your life upon the rock and you will not be shaken. And Lord, for those of us who perhaps in our walk with you, if we're honest, we know that the flame's certainly not burning as brightly as it once was. Lord, I pray that not only today, this coming week, this coming season, as we hear from this radical apostle who was so transformed by the power of your love, and as he writes at the end of his life, a man whose impact that your love has had is so evident, stirs a people to live with a passion for you. Lord, would we allow your love again to fan into flame. We don't want to be half-hearted. We don't want to be apathetic. Lord, it's all in. It's all in for Jesus. We're here to serve you and worship you and daily lay down our lives and to live as the burning ones, burning with your love. Love for you, a love for one another, and a, a love for a world that you died for to preach and proclaim your glorious gospel. We just pray these things in your name, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus.